Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be eager, they would desire to hear from you. And Lord, in the areas where we need to be convicted, that you would work in the areas where we need to be encouraged by your spirit, we would be lifted up. Lord, let the reality of the kingdom of God become our everyday experience, that we might know the victory that Jesus brought. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Last week, we talked about the essence of prayer within the kingdom of God. And the basic idea, if you did not hear the sermon, is that at its root, core is an intimate address to our Father. We talked about some misconceptions. We talked about some ways that prayer works. This morning, I want to talk about the attitude of prayer. Is its essence last week, but what is the attitude that we are to bring into prayer? And I'm going to be up front. It is humility. There's your answer. If that is enough for you, you can take a break for the rest of the sermon. Maybe take a little nap or something while I speak. But I want to talk about humility and hopefully, like with prayer, get a good understanding of the concept. Here's something I've noticed in my life. You can tell me if this is true in yours. At times, I seem to experience the most humility when I am at the highest point. That when I have seen the most success, there comes at some point a humbling experience. I was reading this week and this story, I had to check multiple sources because it seems so far-fetched. It honestly seems more like Monty Python than it does history. But I found multiple historical sites supporting it. In 1807, Napoleon was at the height of his ruling. He held sway over most of continental Europe. He had just forced a treaty with Russia. I mean, he was the man. And one of the things he did to celebrate was to hunt rabbits. His secretary of state went and collected, and the accounts range anywhere from 300 to 3,000 rabbits. More of them are in the thousands. They brought them out to a big field. Napoleon and his hunting team got ready, and they released the rabbits. And something happened that they were not expecting. The rabbits did not run from them. They ran to them. <laughs> to the point that they began to surround their ankles up to their knees. Thousands of rabbits. They began kicking them. They began trying to hit them. And they were crawling up them and began to nibble. And finally... Napoleon ran. 
he ran to his carriage to get away. But in crawling into his carriage, there were rabbits in the carriage that they had to kick out there too. The man who had forced a treaty with Russia was defeated by rabbits. And we have a lot of rabbits in our neighborhood, and it gives me an entirely new impression of those rabbits. Not sure what to do with them anymore. But it is interesting to me that sometimes at the height, we experience moments of humility. And here's what I will say. That is a good thing. If there is one thing that we need when it comes to prayer, it is humility. And one of the hard things about humility today is this. I can look around this room right now. There are very, very successful people in this room. Very intelligent people. People with high degrees. People who have had great success in their vocations. People who have done really good, amazing things. And sometimes that gets in the way of humility. But humility is key to our attitude of prayer. So, three things I want to answer this morning. Number one, where does it come from? Humility and pride. What's its foundation? Number two, why is it so important? I keep saying it's the key. Why is it so important? And number three, how do you cultivate humility? So, where do they come from? Look back at your text. And we're going to look at these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, here's what happens with him. He is, in verse 11... Standing by himself, he is praying, and here is his prayer. God, same way that the tax collector starts his prayer. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. All right, so far, there is biblical precedent for what he just did. You can read in the Psalms where David will talk about his faithfulness to God. That there's nothing inherently wrong with coming before the Lord and saying, God, I am, thank you that I am not lost in this sin or that sin. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not doing these things. If that were all it was, he might be okay. But you begin to see a different attitude. He keeps going. Or even like this tax collector, who we know is far off, because that's what the text says. He says uh, the tax collector is standing far off, and we know that the Pharisee's alone, so at some point he had to even look around to notice this tax collector. And I'm not like him. How am I not like him? I, give I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. All right, so two sides. There's an initial thing that kind of looks okay. I thank you, God, that I'm not struggling with these things, that I don't do those things. But then it begins to shift, or the shift shows the real heart behind that, or I'm not like that guy. I give 
I fast. All right, now, notice the tax collector. And then I'll pull these two things together. Verse 13, but the tax collector who's standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Whereas the Pharisee is well aware that there's this nasty tax collector somewhere that he saw, tax collector, his eyes are down. He's just beating his breast. Now, there is a comparison that the tax collector is making. It's just different from the comparison that the Pharisee's making. The Pharisee's comparing himself to whom? The tax collector. And to all the people that are like him that don't do the things that he does. But the tax collector is also comparing himself. He beats his breast. He won't even look at God. And he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where's his attitude coming from? He knows how far short he is of who? God. Not the Pharisee. Not some other tax collector, not some other person, but God Almighty. He is fully aware, no matter what good he might have done or bad he might have done, he does not measure up to the holiness of God. And the only thing he can do is come before him and go, be merciful to me, God. I don't have anything to tell you the good stuff I've done, because compared to the bad stuff, compared to how low I, 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 just be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And then Jesus helps us see what's going on. The end of verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Tax collector, uh, Pharisee. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Tax collector. This is pride and humility. And you're getting a physical demonstration of pride and humility. Where does this come from? And I will make this argument this morning. Our understanding of ourself in regards to our humility or our pride comes through comparison to others. The reason we feel either really high about ourselves or really low about ourselves is because we compare ourselves to others. The same thing that is happening in this text. And here's what I mean by that. I want to talk first about a positive comparison. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he actually says this. He's talking about work, and he's telling the congregation people need to be working. Like they can't just be living off of charity of others. If they're able to work, they need to work. And he says, I want you to be like me. When we were among you, we did everything we could to support ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean you don't go through hard times or things don't happen. Not that at all. But notice who Paul's pointing to. He's saying, when we were there, this is what we did. We want you to do the same. That's a positive comparison. He's not trying to beat them up. Think of it like this. The other day, I happened to be listening to a preacher. I rarely listen to other preachers. They bug the crud out of me. And I'm listening to this other preacher, and I was going, that is really well done. 
Like this message, the way he is speaking, this is really good. And I thought, I need to listen to him more. Like I've got something to learn from this guy. That's a positive reaction to a comparison. He's better than I am. I'm not beating myself up. I'm not trying to defend myself. I'm just going, I want to grow like that. One time, we were having dinner with a couple, and I like to cook. I love to cook. I'm a decent cook. Sometimes I think too highly of my own cooking. And the meal we were having that this guy cooked, it was exceptional. It was far better than what I could do. And I remember thinking to myself, all right, what can I find wrong with this meal? What can I, there's got to, there's too much salt in that. Well, if he had to cook that less, if he had to pair it with something else, I mean, I'm just looking for everything wrong. Because instead of looking at it and going, man, I got something to learn here, I began to compare and go, ooh, I'm terrible. I got to make myself look better. How often do we use comparison in a negative sense? And I mean, and here's what happens with the tax collector. This is the worst of it. The tax collector does this kind of thing. All right, imagine you are really, really good at following the rules of the road. And I know most of you will have to imagine that. Right, just imagine that is true. Uh, you're always doing the speed limit. You always fully stop at stop signs. Whatever it would be, you always do those things. And then you find out that Joe doesn't. Here's the negative. You start going, if Joe were holier, he'd be following the laws of the land. Because the Bible tells us to submit ourselves to authority. So I am holier than he is. And what I ignore is this. I have no patience whatsoever with anybody I get angry all the time over things that are totally unjustified, but I'm not going to look at those things. What I'm going to do is compare myself to this person who is failing at something I happen to be good at, and it makes me feel really good about me. And sometimes that even translates into my relationship with God, much like the tax collector. Notice he doesn't really ask for anything. He just kind of says, here's how good I am. And then what? I guess, God, you need to respond to my righteousness. And there is a sense in which when we start going, I'm so good at this, that person's not, look how holy I am. Now I come before God and I'm feeling pretty darn good about myself. I'm not beating my chest because I obey the laws of the land. That's the negative. We compare ourselves to others and either we have the inflated sense of pride Or here's the opposite. Imagine that Joe is super patient, and I'm watching it. He is patient with his kids. He is patient with his neighbors. He is patient with the government. And I am not. And I begin to go, I'm not patient like that. And I start to kind of like, I'm going to get more patient. I'm going to show more patience. Then I fail, and I fail, and all of a sudden, I am beating myself up because I'm such a terrible, awful person because I don't have any patience. And I go the opposite side. And by the way, that's not humility. That is a warped sense of humility. Because that's missing the fact that 
actually, I do some things well, some other things not so well. I shouldn't be trying to compare myself to Joe, but I should go, and Joe, that's awesome. Dude, you are doing this in the kingdom. That's amazing, and, and I want to grow in patience. Maybe you can help me. We compare, right? Now, besides for producing pride and warped humility, here's the biggest issue with the comparison. It is the wrong measurement. Here's what I mean. All right, I like to bake. Not just cook, I like to bake too. And there is a difference between measuring liquids and measuring solids. That's why you have the glass cup and you have the plastic things because in solids, it's measuring weight. In liquids, it's measuring volume. And if you try to measure a liquid in the plastic cup, number one, it's really messy because the cup is the top. So you fill it all the way up to the top and then what? You kind of do this to get over there and try and dump it all in and hope none of it spills. And my wife is not gonna like this, but when you measure solids, you actually are measuring weight. Because eight ounces, or a cup of flour, supposed to be eight ounces. But if you dump a cup of flour in there, it's closer to six. You can't measure liquids and solids with the opposite things. You will be off, not by a ton. I mean, the unfortunate thing is my wife is such a darn good baker that even when she measures things wrong, it still comes out better than what I make. But you're using the wrong measurement. Let me ask you a single question. Whose image are you made in? That's the only person you should be comparing yourself to. So you're not made in the image of the person next to you. Your goal is not to become what they are. It's to become what Christ is. So that the one comparison that we're called, the one measurement that actually tells you where you are in your spiritual life is comparing yourself to God, not to one another. Now, I need to add something to this because when you compare yourself to God, what happens? Let's see. He's more loving than I am. He's more patient than I am. He's more beautiful than I am. He is more accomplished than I am. He is more everything positive than I am. And it's not even close. And I'm never going to get there. So what's the point? <laughs> I mean, if that's my comparison, it seems like I would just be depressed and get apathetic and like give up. Because there's another side to this coin. The very one that you evaluate yourself against is the one who's already evaluated you. And you know what he said about your value? Think about this. He created the world knowing we'd ruin it. And it would cost him the life of his son to redeem it. But he still did it. Why? Because of how much he values his creation. You, the ones made in his image. So you are not evaluated by your failures. 
your value is fixed by the love of God for you. And when you put those two things together, you will get what actual humility is. It is the recognition that I fall far short of what I'm actually called to. And it does not matter the people around me, not in the comparison sense, because that's not what I'm called to be. I'm not called to be them. I'm called to be like him. And even though I fall really, really, really short, I am also really, really, really loved by him. And I have so much value that I can come before him and beat my chest and go, I am a sinner, have mercy, and know that he wants to have mercy on me. Know that he wants to keep working with me. It's like teaching your children how to do something like ride a bike or swim. And you know that portion of time where they're just awful at it and you're wondering if they are ever gonna get this or if they're gonna be like 27 years old and you're still holding on to the seat and you're like, okay, you can do this now because they're just so awful at it. But when you get done, you don't then go, yeah, you stink. Go get a job and do your own meals at this point, five-year-old. You don't do that. Why? Because that child's value has absolutely nothing to do with how many times they fall off that bike, right? Your value to God has nothing to do with how far you need to go to get to him, I, to be like him, not to get to him. Sorry, make this correct here. You're not striving to get to him, but how far away you are from what he's like he still just keeps picking you up. He keeps saying, let's try it again. Let's keep going. That is where you are humbled, where you can recognize your failure but not get lost in your failure, where you can see how far away you are from the mark and yet know that the mark itself is going, come on, keep going. Come to my throne of grace. Let me help you. That is what true humility is like. Why is it so important? Why does it matter so much? Number one, you get in this text. Look back at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Very simple. God responds differently to humility than he does to pride. God hears both prayers. There's nothing you say that God doesn't hear. There's nothing you think that God doesn't know. But he responds differently to humility than he does to pride. And you see this, I mean, here's a number of passages. We read one from Chronicles. Um, that was actually, it was chapter seven, as he said, not what was in your bulletin. I threw a one on there on accident. Um, but besides for Chronicles, here's Psalm 25. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Here's Psalm 76. From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still when God rose to establish judgment to save the humble of the earth. Here's Proverbs 
Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. This is Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Notice the first part. He is way up here and he's our comparison. But then it continues, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Again, God responds differently to humility than he does to pride. Here's James. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's the only time that kind of language happens. We see it in the parable he gives. When you humble yourself, he'll exalt you. We see it in James. We see it in Peter. But there's no other time where God talks about what you do that he's going to respond by exalting. Only humility. God responds differently to humility. Number two, and this is important, really, really important. Humility can guard us from false expectations of God. Now, here's what I mean. I'm going to ask you to do something in your heart right now. I don't want you to raise your hand. But if we were being honest, I think every hand in the room would be raised. God has not always answered prayer in the way you want him to answer prayer. Sometimes it feels like he hasn't answered the prayer at all. And that has made you upset, sometimes angry. Sometimes what God is doing or not doing makes us wonder, God, are you even there? Like, are you real? Are you good? But here's what humility starts as. God, you owe me nothing. You've already given me far more than I can ever give back or deserve. You owe me nothing. You don't owe me an answer to any of my prayers. You don't owe me anything. So that when you do answer, hallelujah. Lord, that is, thank you. I just thank you. I don't know what else to say. And when he doesn't do what we want, those who have come in humility continue to move forward trusting because there were no expectations in the first place. You don't owe me anything. I just had a conversation with one of my sons, and he's really learning that idea of what is fair. And at six years old, fair is really important. Like, however one is treated, the other has to be treated in the same way, or he's going to point it out to you. And all summer long, we had our boys, eight and six, doing all of their own laundry. They had to come down, they had to put it in the thing, they had to take it out, they had to fold their old clothes, and boy, did it look terrible when they were done. All their clothes were wrinkled and everything else, but they were doing it all summer long. But when we got to school, a lot more is going on. It does take them like an entire day to do laundry. And so we're stepping in and helping. And yesterday, Aaron folded Kenan's clothes for him, and then Kenan put them away. Well, she had left to do something, and so Killian's got done, and I said, Killian, you need to go fold your clothes. And he goes, but mom folded Kenan's. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, that makes sense. 
I'll tell you what, you go find the basket and get the clothes. Just bring them to me, I'll fold them. This was his response. But Kenan didn't have to find the basket and bring the clothes to you. (laughs) That whole thing on patience, yeah. That was quite the spiritual challenge in that moment. Now, if it hadn't been for this sermon, I'm pretty sure I would have responded differently. But we had a little talk about, do you deserve to have me fold your clothes to you for you? Did Keenan deserve to have moms have mom fold the clothes? Or are we just doing something really nice for you that you don't deserve in the first place? But if your focus is going to be on what I didn't do for you or what you have to do that he didn't do no matter how little, instead of the like 15 minutes I was going to spend actually folding your clothing and then the next 45 I was going to spend looking around the house for the missing socks... Expectations, but when you start from a humble place, the expectations are different. Number three, humility can guide our prayers and actually give us a larger vision of God than we might do on our own. Because the other problem with our pride is half the time we think way too small. We're often content with us just being successful in things and missing a much bigger picture that God may have. Listen to this prayer. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when the abundance of things we possess We have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity, and in our efforts to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. When we approach God in our pride, we often miss the majesty of what God can do because we're so content with what we've already done. God responds differently to humility. Humility changes our expectations And humility, as we come before God in it, can paint a much bigger vision of what God might want to do than what our pride will. The last one I'm not going to talk about today because it's my entire sermon next week. Humility is the foundation for faith. Next week, I'm going to talk about faith and prayer and answer some of the questions. Um, Last week, somebody asked me the question, if more people pray... Does God hear differently? Because when things go on, we're always asking, like, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? And then somebody say, we have like thousands of people praying. Now God's going to move. Does it make a difference? I want to talk about faith next week. How does faith impact prayer? So that'll be my fourth point is humility is the foundation of prayer. uh, Or sorry, the foundation of faith. But that'll be next week. So 
Let me end by giving you a list of ways to cultivate humility that will be printed in the weekly email. And I'm mostly going to ask you, as you hear this list, if something stands out to you, just try that, right? Ten ways that you can cultivate humility in your life. Number one is what we've been talking about the whole sermon. Compare yourself to God, not to others, but remember his great love for you. Keep looking to him and what he's done. Let that be the one you compare yourself to. Not the person next to you, not the neighbor, God. All right, here's a few others. Practice doing acts for God without others knowing and without telling others about them. Directly out of the Sermon on the Mount, this is a humble approach to spirituality. You do things for God as your audience, nobody else. Practice thinking about and praying for the needs and concerns of other people. And I mean that. I don't just mean like that one big thing that's going on, but spend a little time really thinking about the people in your life and the stuff they are going through. Because sometimes when you start seeing this person's going through that, this person has this rough patch, this person has this, you go, wow, God, I, I'm really blessed. Like I am humbled that I am not going through all of these things and I want to pray for them. And it gets your eyes off of you and onto others. In the same way, practice thinking of ways and then doing it to encourage other people. Just get your eyes off of you. Think of three or four people in your life and go, this week I'm going to do something to encourage them. And I'll put my attention on that. Practice being grateful. All right, you ready for this one? About 80% of you cannot do this. I struggle with this. Practice asking for help. It is a humbling thing to have to ask for help. Practice asking for help. Practice not dwelling on the faults of others. How easy is it to find that thing that's wrong with somebody and just fixate on that? Practice not dwelling on the faults of others. Practice asking for feedback from people in your life. But let me finish. Listening to it and implementing it. All three things. Pray for humility. And let me give you another thing that we need to get rid of, like get this out of your thinking. There's this whole idea you know, don't pray for those things you really want because God's going to turn your world upside down. Don't pray for humility because he's really going to make, don't pray to not be a missionary because he's going to send you to a third world country in the Amazon. Get rid of that. Pray for humility. You're right. God may give you something to help humble you, but that will be a good thing. Like, that's part of praying for humility. And then number 10 kind of goes back to number one. It's a bookend. I would challenge you to really look at the life of Jesus. You will see humility in action. You'll see the creator of the universe humbling himself, coming as a little child to a backwater country without any pomp and circumstance. You'll see the creator of the universe washing the feet of those he's leading. You will see him do things that no king should ever do. That's humility in action. 
reflect on the life of Jesus. So, there's a reason those rabbits attacked Napoleon. The reason is because his secretary of state that went and collected them cheated. Instead of going out and capturing rabbits, he went to farms throughout the area and grabbed domesticated rabbits that were not afraid of people. In fact, they were used to coming to people to get food. And he dumped thousands of these domesticated rabbits in a field with a group of men in front of them. And guess what the rabbits did? They do what they always do. Let's go get some food. They went after them. It would have been so much harder to do it the right way. Humility is the same thing. You can't fake it. Fake humility is just ugly. It's warped, and it does nothing for your spiritual life. It is something that is cultivated in your heart and your soul by the way that you look at God, the comparisons you make with him, the ways you think of other people, the practices that you have. You cultivate humility that is part of who you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, cultivate within each one of us a deep, humble spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.